Well, let me first of all say uh, what I suppose you expect me to say, but I very genuinely mean it's not just pat repetition. Uh, a very hearty thanks, first of all, for inviting me here for this week and uh, for your prayers, your encouragement. A, a tremendous amount of hard work goes into a week like we've just had, all sorts of activities, some during the day, of course, and then in the evenings. I really do believe that the Lord has blessed us this week, right from the very first prayer meeting and um, uh, time together on Monday evening, and then all the way through. It seems though in every setting, um, there's been a sense that the Lord has been with us and it's been a good, good week. So thank you, everybody who's prayed. I realise it's a little bit more difficult because we, you know, many people are watching online and they're not able to be here. We understand that. But nevertheless, despite the difficulties and even having to wear masks, if somebody could just invent a mask that doesn't steam up your glasses, I would be really very, very grateful. But there we are. It's not happened yet. Uh, so thank you for your prayers. And um, uh, the fellowship I've enjoyed, I've been staying with, um, with uh, Kerry and Rose and uh, with the pastor. Um, when we've had good fellowship and I, I just want to thank you. And then several others, I'm not going to name you all. We've had some lovely times together and I, I bless, bless the Lord for it all. Thank you. Um, I haven't been able to meet as many of you as I would have liked because obviously at the end people are ushered out, etc. If you don't mind me mentioning, I have brought a pile of newsletters that are hot off the press. Well, they're a week old now, to be honest. And uh, on the way out there, I'd love to give you one and uh, you might just enjoy the bits and pieces that there are uh, here. Um, you'll see a big sort of blue advertisement there for something that we've I and a few friends have been doing all the way really since the beginning of the, the lockdown. And that is basically what we've done here night by night this week. Uh, we've done on, um, on a sort of, I don't know, <laughs> I've got the, the terminology, a sort of YouTube channel. Is, does that sound right? Um, every Saturday night at 8 p.m., we, we've been inter interviewing somebody. Usually I do it, and then somebody gives a gospel message. And all of them are available for, for watching. Uh, so if you go on www.reallives, there's a double L in the middle, .net, they're all available. And there are some, what's the word, humdinging testimonies, some remarkable stories. Um, yesterday evening, I, I, I interviewed him before, but I missed the programme last night, but went home eventually and watched it. We interviewed a man. Can you imagine this? He and his wife had four children. Number three, age nine, was abducted and murdered. He wasn't a Christian. His wife had become one and his little daughter had, who was murdered, but he wasn't. And the impact that that had on him and his family is just absolutely engaging. In fact, uh, a book has just come out about it called There Came a Day. Uh, well, that's on this coming Saturday. Somebody brought up in the exclusive Brethren and um, a sort of group that has become a cult in recent years. And, and so it goes on. Two weeks ago, it was a professor, one of the 50 most influential people in the world, apparently, and uh, his story. Anyway, they're all there, but I'd love to give you one of these and do have a look at the, the Real Lives interviews. You'll find some very, very different and very fascinating ones. Uh, they really are. But also, each of these evenings that we've had this week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, they're all on the Heath website. And again, some deeply moving ones. Last night with Tamar, and then I think particularly on Thursday with Jeremy Marshall, but so different. On Friday, we had um, one of your own folk here, converted Muslim, etc. Do have a look if you haven't seen them before. Now, if you have a Bible, would you turn, please, to um, 
the book of Isaiah, and uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 52, the end of it, and then into chapter 53. Very interesting, this passage in the Old Testament is the most frequently Old Testament passage that's found in the New Testament. And that's why I was keen to tell the story to the boys and girls with my own mischievous take on it. And I was thinking afterwards, oh, I'm sure I shouldn't have said that. But I wanted them to know one of the stories uh, where this passage was involved. It's it's called a servant song. And there are a number of those in the book of Isaiah. And this is Isaiah's fourth servant song. And it contains five stanzas. And probably in your Bible, you can see them there blocked out, you know, uh, 52, 13 through to 15. Then there's a big sort of gap, isn't there? And so so we go on. Significantly as well, just by way of background, until the 12th century AD, Jewish scholars would have all accepted that this chapter is speaking about the coming Messiah. But actually, when you read it, that doesn't fit in with Jewish thinking. And so they then began by describing and saying, no, 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 it's not, it's not the Messiah, it's, it's Israel, it's the nation of Israel. But that just does not fit. Because how could Israel die to atone for the sins of Israel? That wouldn't make sense. And then how, um, how could it be that Israel was declared innocent of sin and therefore suffering unjustly? That doesn't fit in either. No, it's clearly speaking about a person who's going to come and who's going to die in the place of people. We'll come on to that. I think interesting as well, just before we start digging into it, it's worth noting that Hebrew poetry is in pairs. So you get a a sort of phrase or a half sentence and then that same idea is repeated or extended in the second part of the sentence. So the second line extends or, as I say, completes the thought. Now, in Isaiah 53, this passage we have, there are 24 of these parallels. The central one is he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. That's the sort of climax of this passage that we're going to look at. But all the way through this passage, there's a bringing together of ideas like majesty and power. But, but those two concepts are sort of linked with humiliation and suffering and weakness. And I imagine for the early readers, before the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, they must have read this and thought, this is paradoxical. How does, how does majesty and power sort of fit comfortably with, with humiliation and suffering? And, and it would have been bewildering. Now we look through the perspective of the Lord Jesus Christ and we see it very, very differently. Now, if you've lost me, please come back because we're now going to look at the passage. Let's look at these five stanzas. The first one at the end of chapter 52 is the way we've broken it up in our Bibles. And um, verses 13 to 15, and I'm going to label this, the servant is presented. People are astonished and startled by this servant who's presented. We, we, we have a little insight into his appearance. Verse 14, just as many were astonished that your visage was marred more than any other man, his form more than the sons of men. And when you think about it, when the Lord Jesus Christ was going to the cross, exactly this, his, his, his visage, his face, was he, he was spat upon, wasn't he? He was slapped. He was beaten on the head with fists. 
He was scourged and then again his body was beaten. You get that, but also in verse 13, you get the fact that he's exalted. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And then in verse 15, you get an insight into the fact that he has a message. What is it? So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what they have not been told, then they shall see. And what they have not heard, they shall consider. So the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant, is presented. This exalted one who's going to suffer. But he's doing so with a purpose. He comes with a message. Now remember, this is written 700 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was born. My grandchildren are scattered throughout the world. I've got some in in New Zealand, some in Portugal, some in the United States, and fortunately some just around the corner. But of course, for three lots of grandchildren, I I really don't see them except on Zoom. So every weekend I, um, I, uh, I, I, I send a Sunday school to them. I went back last night and I couldn't think what to do. But anyway, I did it early this morning. I sent a Sunday school to them. And, and we quickly looked at this passage and I linked them then to, um, to the Ethiopian eunuch. And I, I asked them to, to, to see this not only as an amazing passage about the Lord Jesus, but an evidence that the Bible is God's word. Because all the way through scripture, there are prophecies And then they were fulfilled years, centuries later. Some of these prophecies concern nations. Some concern cities. Some concern individuals. And all fulfilled in minute detail. But most of them are about the Lord Jesus Christ. This was written 700 years before Jesus was born. 400 years before crucifixion was devised and yet it describes the suffering of the Lord Jesus so, so perfectly. And I often say to people who are not Christians, if there is no God who could write in the present what would happen in the future and get it right so accurately. This is Isaiah the prophet, probably the king's physician, an aristocratic prophet who writes about the coming and the coming death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at the second stanza. Chapter 53, verses 1 to 3. Now the servant is profaned. The arm of the Lord, we read of that in the first verse. The arm of the Lord is a person who is revealed to those who believe. You see, faith, faith in the Lord, faith is the individual condition on which the perfected revelation becomes not just one for everybody, but becomes a revelation for me. Oh, wow, by faith I see the Lord. We thought about that a little yesterday. Jesus' life was a life of of solitude. I I know he had the 12 disciples, and I know that he was often ministering to, to individuals and sometimes to thousands of people. I know that. But there was a a loneliness about the Lord Jesus. Who could ever really be at one with him who was so pure and holy? But his solitude, of course, was going to be worst and most extreme when he was on the cross at the time of his death. I would argue he... He was the loneliest person who ever lived. And yet, he, he was mixing with people. He was a social person. 
And yet he was always at one with his father. Sometimes we're grieved about what's going on in society. Imagine how the holy heart of the Lord Jesus was as he saw all that was happening around about him. Utterly solitary. Jesus died on a cross and was cut off not only from his followers and friends and of course from the crowds who were all baying for his death, but from his father, the one he'd been at one with throughout the eons of eternity past. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, in perfect unity. And yet here is the Lord Jesus alone now, outside Jerusalem, hanging on a cross. As he entered into his sufferings, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As, as he leaves his sufferings he gives himself over to death father into your hands I commit my spirit but in the midst of his sufferings as the sin the weight of the world's sin is laid on Jesus what does he cry out not my father he's cut off from his father my God my God why hast thou forsaken me he was forsaken by his father that we might be forgiven and never never forsaken by our heavenly father but how solitary, how lonely, the intensity of that loneliness would have been very real for him. Here the servant is profaned. I think the loneliness would have been compounded because, it's interesting, the more one longs to bless somebody, the more the suffering one experiences if that blessing is refused. I don't know how many homes I've stayed in over the years. It, it's hundreds of homes. And, but I don't know how many I've stayed in where you have Christian parents breaking their hearts over one or more of their children. And they just long for their children to know and experience what they know about the Lord. And yet, but because it's been refused, all oh, the pain, constant they go to, to sleep at night thinking about it. They wake up in the morning thinking about it. They want to be a blessing, but it's being rejected. And, and, and the Lord Jesus, longing to bless a lost world and yet them rejecting him. How that hurt. Jesus saw things as no one else ever sees things. And therefore the human distress was all the greatest as Jesus carried on himself our sin. And then thirdly, in this stanza, verses four through to six, we have the servant punished. This isn't an easy concept for us to understand in, in the sort of day and age in which we live, where the, the whole concept of, of punishment isn't even, even revered these days. But the servant here is punished. It's interesting, as you look at these verses, there's an accumulation of expressions of suffering, and they all sort of crowd into these verses. Grief, sorrows, wounded, bruised, smitten, chastised, stripes. Now, at the heart of Israel's religious system, and, and of course the people at the time of Isaiah and certainly at the time of the Lord Jesus were well aware of this, it, it, an innocent animal could be sacrificed and die in place of the guilty sinner. So somebody knew they'd done wrong, and the Bible says of all of us that we are sinful. There's non-righteous, 
the Bible says. No, not one. But somebody felt their sin and they would take an animal, say a lamb, that would be sacrificed. They'd lay their hand on the head of the lamb, almost as it were transferring their sin, their guilt onto this innocent sacrifice and it would die as a substitute in place of the sinner. Now, all the Israelites knew that. That was their religious way of, of living and working. But of course, a lamb couldn't take away human sin. But all those lamb sacrifices, all, the, all those centuries, they were sort of portraying, picturing the fact that eventually, in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus Christ would come and he would be the lamb. Not just a lamb, but the lamb who would die to take away the sin of the world. How he suffered. He... He, he was sort of, on the cross, he was wounded like somebody who's being pierced by a sharp sword would be wounded. He was bruised, if I can use the word here, as somebody who was perhaps being stoned to death might be bruised. Our sins were laid on him, and he not only paid for them, but he carried them away. Again, in, in Israelite religion, they, they had a sacrifice, and there was a scapegoat. Uh, one was to die, but one was a scapegoat, and it sort of took away the sin of a nation. But when the Lord Jesus died, he was taking on himself the sin of the world, not just a nation or an individual, but, but no more than that, the sin of the world laid on Jesus. He's a propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. He felt the weight of the affliction of sin on him, as he carried it. And it's interesting as well, in his suffering, he wasn't sort of entangled in a widespread calamity. This can happen to us, can't it, you know? Suddenly something happens and hundreds, thousands maybe of people are caught up in it. But no, this was Jesus who was the only victim. But what a victim. He's the incarnate God. God come into our world and he's there taking our sin. Then we come to the fourth stanza, verses seven to nine. And here the servant is passive. Jesus is the lamb. In fact, that Jesus is called the lamb of God 24 times in the book of Revelation alone. He was, he was belittled in life and brutalised in death. I hope I'm doing the right thing in telling you this because some of you may find this very hurtful and painful, but I want to try and get it across. The next village to where I live is a gorgeous village called Kettlewell. It's beautiful. And of course, tourists love to be there, etc. But last year... Just, I think it was the beginning of the, the lockdown, there was a scandal which hit all our local press because some farmers were photographed, filmed and photographed, and they'd taken sheep by their legs and they'd suspended them from a branch of a tree and they beat them to death. And of course, people were scandalised by this. This is dreadful. And then it turned out, you know, there was obviously writing in our local press about it, but it turned out they weren't breaking any law. There's something about a lamb that is entirely passive. 
I've talked to people who've seen lambs slaughtered and it's as if they're willing to submit to what's about to happen to them. And the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing the intensity of agony that he would suffer as he hung on the cross out of love for us, submitted. He submitted as a servant is not permitted to answer back. So the Lord Jesus submitted to the will of his Father. This designed even before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the the world, Jesus, the Lamb, slain. He only spoke when a silence would have been taken as a sort of denying of his own kingship. And so he was silent before his shearers. He embraced the cross. Why? Well, he loved his father and wanted to do his will. But he loved the world and came to be the saviour. I don't know that any of us could really have stomached watching the Lord Jesus die. But he did it for us. My sin was laid on Jesus. He carried all the rottenness of my life. Everything that cuts me off from God. Everything that would keep me out of heaven. Everything that would condemn me to hell. God took and laid on the lovely Lord Jesus Christ. And he passively submitted, meekly taking on himself as he was cut off, like a tree is felled, he was cut off from his father. It's interesting, we've not yet read the grim word death until we get to verse 9. Before this, it's all the suffering he's enduring. And he's done it for us. And then it's interesting in verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked. I understand the word grave with the wicked sort of implies something plural. Well, there were two thieves crucified on either side. But it goes on, doesn't it? But with the rich at his death, and I understand the word rich is singular. He was laid in a tomb that was owned by a rich man called Joseph of Arimathea. But, you know, for 700 odd years, these words must have just been meaningless to every reader. What is all this about? And then came the moment of crucifixion. He suffered, he bled, he died, and he did it for you and me. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Have you ever really grasped that? The Lord of all glory came into the world and did this for you and me. Joseph of Arimathea, this wealthy man, made his way through the streets of Jerusalem Somehow he managed to be able to, perhaps he was such an influential man, I don't know, he managed to pass through the the sort of guard that was protecting the governor, Pontius Pilate. And he goes before Pontius Pilate and he begs for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pilate's surprised, is he really dead already? But Jesus gave himself over to death. When he'd paid for our sin, when his blood had been shed, when he'd carried all this sin on himself and atoned for it, then he dismissed his spirit and the message came out, yes, yes, he's dead. And so strangely, Pilate grants a request of Joseph of Arimathea for this body to be taken down. And they bound it, they bind it up and they, they lay it in an unused 
grave, put a huge stone and seal it and guard it. There was no way anybody could ever break through and steal this body. And then we come to this final stanza, verses 10 through to 13. And I'm going to call this one, The Servant is Pleased. Now understand again what has happened. This is the Lord Jesus who's died. The lips which once called out to the dead body of Lazarus, who'd been in the grave four days, Lazarus, come out! Those lips were now still and silent. The head which once had been anointed by Mary with precious ointment now is crowned with thorns. The eyes that which once looked over the city of Jerusalem and wept for this city, they're now shut, and hands that bless little children, nailed to a cross, feet that walked on water, nailed, fastened to a cross. The heart of compassion which the Lord Jesus had, now broken and still. And, and, and the mob would, would begin to disperse, wouldn't they? You know, we've seen everything, he's dead, and and they'd move away. The Pharisees, I want, these were the religious leaders of the day. I wonder what they were like. I, I sort of imagine them, whether I'm right or I don't know, but sort of rubbing their hands with glee and self-congratulation. Yes, <laughs> we've got rid of him. And the Sadducees, breathing sighs of relief. They really did not like what Jesus was saying and doing. And the centurion, who'd been responsible for overseeing the, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, no doubt made his way to fill out the report that he had, this official report about the crucifixion of these three people. And Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus, she knew she needed a saviour. Did she realise this? This is the saviour yet? I don't know, but imagine her heart was broken, her head would bow and eyes would weep. And those 11 apostles, the disciples, Judas, of course, went and hung himself, but they scattered. They were, the 11 were like frightened sheep at this stage. They feared that the same fate was coming to them. But Joseph of Arimathea, he went and asked for the body and laid it in this tomb. And there it was for three days until. Oh, wow. If only we, the trouble is we've heard these words so often. You know what I'm going to say. But if only we were there for the first time. If only we could sort of see this in a new light. This is amazing. The body that was dead and laid in that tomb rose. He came alive. He conquered death. He defeated sin. The stone, the seal, the soldiers could not hold him. He broke free. He'd done what no human being could ever do. He conquered the conqueror, death. He defeated death. The Lord Jesus Christ prophesied all these years before, going to be doing this. And the greatest events in world history have just been prophesied and later on fulfilled. And the Lord Jesus Christ now is the judge. Now he's risen. Now we see the one who is, was once despised and rejected and smitten and stricken and afflicted and wounded, sacrificed, this man of sorrows, the silent lamb of God, now has become the conqueror, the ruler. He's the Lord. He, he, he reigns. One day he will return. 
But do you know, the Savior who endured all of this gazes on the results of his sufferings. And he's pleased when men and women repent and believe. The grief that he endured has had its fruit. The glory now does not die. It is forever. The grief is over and done with. But the glory now, as he gathers together his people who are going to be with him, his sons and daughters throughout all of... Oh, uh, uh, do you know, this is more wonderful for him. It's like at the very beginning of the Bible, we get how God created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. Well, now he has another victorious rest. He's, he's accomplished, he's purchased salvation and now he sees people experiencing it. He's, he's bought redemption and the, he's a satisfied servant and he's done it all for us. Alec Mateer, who wrote a couple of commentaries on the book of Isaiah, the shorter one, the Tyndale one, is, is the easiest to read and I recommend it. He says, um, Christ is the executor of salvation. He says, the Lamb's book of life is the Lord Jesus Christ's prayer list. Isn't that lovely? That when a person comes to a place where they recognise their sin and wants to turn from it in repentance, and they trust the crucified, risen, exalted Jesus, we're on his heart. Those wounds, as it were, are like a permanent, constant intercession prayer for us. Well, I've said enough. There's so much more in this, this wonderful chapter. But let's just think what's happened. We followed the Lord Jesus Christ to the graveyard. The first set of verses are all about us. It talks about our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, our peace. We are healed. Us all, we get in verse 6. But he's led as a lamb to the slaughter and he takes all of this. So the second section is seeing everything from the Lord's point of view. My people, when you make my righteous servant, he shall bear, he was murdered, he bore, sorry, he was numbered rather, he bore our sin. He made intercession for us. The tables turn away from us to the Lord Jesus Christ. What I've tried to present this week is a wonderful saviour who's loved us and gone to such extreme measures to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us, to reconcile us to God. And, and all I can do is say, look, what do you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? When the United States were involved in Vietnam in the, the battles there, there was an incident where a US soldier crawled in, in, in the face of the Viet Cong, the enemy for them, in face of Viet Cong fire to, to rescue a fellow soldier who was wounded. But as he was crawling to get his friend, he was being shot at. The amazing thing is, he did manage to rescue him, but he lost his life in so doing. Well, eventually, of course, the Vietnam War came to an end and the parents 
of the soldier who did the rescuing, who laid down his life, the, those parents thought we'd love to meet the soldier whom our son rescued. And they managed to get in touch and they invited him, please, please, come and see us. Let's have a meal together. We'd like to know you and get to know you. He did arrive, but he was tipsy. He'd been drinking. And the behaviour over all the mealtime was just disgracefully rude. And eventually, of course, he made his way. And the wife turned to her husband and said, to think that our darling son had to die for that. And you can imagine how she felt. How does the Lord Jesus Christ feel when he gave everything? The Lord of all glory coming into our world and going to a cross. He gave everything. And we see a world trample him underfoot. Comedians on the television just joking, blaspheming him. Clever intellectuals thinking they're greater than God and their intellect can put God down, mocking him to students at university. How does he feel when we just ignore him and pretend never happened, he has no relevance? Well, he still loves us, amazingly. And he says to us, look, come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, come to me, come. And if you've never yet come to the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart, I would beg you this morning, don't even wait till this afternoon. God doesn't promise this afternoon. But he does say today, if you will hear my voice, don't harden your heart. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Today, call upon the Lord Jesus. Repent of your own willful wayward life and ask Jesus to save you. And he will. And he'll run to do it. And he'll enter into a relationship with him which can be very costly and tough. But he'll never leave you. He'll take you through life. And one day he'll take you home. And to be with him, to gaze on him, I've got to say I cannot imagine anything more glorious. And give me an eternity of gazing on the Lord Jesus, though it's much more than that. That is not long enough. Because he is altogether wonderful. We sang about it, my God, how wonderful art. And we're going to sing about it again now. O sacred head, sore wounded. And after this, I'm going to pray a prayer that you could use if you would call on the name of the Lord and ask him to save you. But first of all, O sacred head, sore wounded.
pray two prayers, one that you could pray, and I believe you should pray, of asking the Lord Jesus to save you. If you've never prayed like this before, do pray this prayer with me. And if you pray this prayer, just say to me, Roger, I prayed with you this morning. On the way out, just say that. I have a little booklet I'd like to give you. And then I'm going to pray for the Lord's blessing on us for the rest of this, the Lord's Day, and for the coming week. Dear God, I feel ashamed of all my sin and I want to turn from it. I do believe that the Lord Jesus loved me and died for me and that he rose from the dead. Please forgive me. Please come by your spirit and live within me. Please make me yours. Become my Lord and Saviour. And from this moment on, help me to follow you. For I pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. And Father, what can we say? Such love from the Lord Jesus. Unto us who believe, he is overwhelmingly precious. And we ask that day by day, this day, tomorrow, and each unfolding day, he would be esteemed in our hearts increasingly, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Bless us this day. We pray for this evening service. Use, win greatly, we pray, and speak to each of our hearts. And in all the activities of this week, Lord, just use us, we ask, in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.